Bam! You have made it to yet another Scrambling University. Hey, welcome. Welcome back. All right. Well, today is Thursday, December 12th, I think, pretty much, 2023. This is episode number 182, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. We are discussing chapter 14. Now, if you're like, whoa, scrambling, what the hell's going on? Okay. On Thursdays is book club day at Scrambling University. First book we're going through is Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, chapter at a time. I pre-record them so you don't have to read. They're up on Odyssey at Scrambling University in a playlist. They'll play one through 18 right now. Um, so anyway, if you want to get ahead, listen to that. If you don't mind listening to it chopped up with me chit-chatting in the discussion here on Thursdays, then you can just listen along. Uh, I just posted the link to come on the show with me. If you've read chapter 14 and you want to talk about chapter 14, nothing else, then use the link and come on the air with me. Uh, yeah, love to have you. Uh, the, the idea was that if you're going to come on the air and talk about the book, that you would commit to doing at least six, there's 32 episodes. So lots of time to go. So yeah, if you want to try out being a guest talking head, I'll put you in another square. Um, let's see, you know what I figured, um, I was going to try front loading these episodes with just a little bit of what the chapter is about. And that might make it easier, right? For people that are just getting the book while they're listening along and haven't pre-read it. It's like, okay, I'll kind of tell you what's coming up and then it might be easier to digest. So uh, yeah, in this chapter, Persig introduces the concept of gumption traps, which are situations that cause us to lose our motivation, give up on our goals. We've all been there, right? We start out with the best of intentions, but somewhere along the way we get stuck. All right. <laughs> Maybe it's a problem we can't solve or a setback that just walloped us out of the side. Whatever it is, it can be incredibly frustrating and it's all too easy just to throw in the towel. But as Persig points out, the key to overcoming these gumption traps is to focus on the present moment, the now, to take small steps towards your goal. Do the next thing. It's important not to dwell on the mistakes learn from them, right? It's a permaculture concept. Observe and interact. Observe and interact. Observe, right? And then the, the idea is think about it and then go interact, right? Uh, let's see. Uh, talks about... First, uh, 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 talks about the importance of uh, perspective and how we view and handle problems, right? He suggests we should approach problems with a positive attitude and an open mind. I would say that there's an infinite solution to all problems, an infinite number of solutions, right? Once you are open to that, and you only have to pick the most elegant, easiest to accomplish solution, once you are open to, there's an infinite number of solutions, I only have to pick one. It's easier than thinking there's only one solution. You have to find it. 
And he reminds us that it's essential to be in tune with our feelings as this can help prevent gumption traps from occurring in the first place, right? Understand that you're getting pissed off at the fucking machine. (laughs) You know, it is what it is. Uh, At the end of the day, Persev is really getting at in this chapter is the importance of perseverance and determination achieving our goals. It's not always going to be easy. But as he says, the real cycle you're working on is a cycle called yourself. All right. Well, onward. We'll stop it. Pop in. It's a long chapter, so I'll try not to interrupt too much. But, you know, I can't not butt in. At least I'm buttoning in on myself. Oh, pretty funny. And the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, an inquiry into values by Robert Person. Spoken by Scrambling. Chapter 14. We ride down out of the pass into a small green plain. To the immediate south, we can see pine-forested mountains that still have last winter's snow on the peaks. In all other directions appear lower mountains, more in the distance, but just as clear and sharp. This picture postcard scenery vaguely fits memory, but not definitely. This interstate freeway we are on must not have existed then. The statement, to travel is better than to arrive, comes back to mind again and stays. We've been traveling and now we will arrive. For me, a period of depression comes on when I reach a temporary goal like this and have to reinforce myself toward another one. In a day or two, John and Sylvia must go back and Chris and I must decide what to do next. Everything has to be reorganized. The main street of the town seems vaguely familiar, but there's a feeling of being a tourist now, and I see the shop signs are for me, the tourist, not for the people who live here. This isn't really a small town. People are moving too fast and too independently of one another. It's one of these population 15 to 30,000 towns that isn't exactly a town, not exactly a city, not exactly anything really. We eat lunch in a glass chrome restaurant that brings no recall at all. It looks as though it's been built since he lived here and shows the same lack of identity seen on the main street. I go to a phone book and look for Robert DeWeese's number, but don't find it. I dial the operator, but she's never heard of the party and can't tell me the number. Dial the operator. I don't believe it. Were they just in his imagination? Her statement produces a panicky feeling that lasts for a moment. But then I remember their answer to my letter telling them we were coming and calm down. Imaginary people don't use the mail. John suggests I try to call the art department or some friends. I smoke for a while and drink coffee. And when I'm relaxed again, I do this and learn how to get there. It's not the technology that's scary. It's what 
it does to the relations between people like callers and operators. That's scary. From the town to the mountains across the valley floor must be less than 10 miles. And we cross that distance now on dirt roads through green high alfalfa ready for cutting. So thick it looks difficult to walk through. The fields sweep outwards and slightly upwards to the base of the mountains where a much darker green of pines rises suddenly up. That will be where the Deweeses live, where the light green and the dark green meet. The wind is full of the light green, new mown hay smells and livestock smells. At one point, we pass through a cold bank of air where the smell changes to pine, but then are back in the warm again, sunlight and meadows and the close looming mountain. Just as we get to the pines, the gravel in the road becomes very deep. We slow down to first gear at 10 mile an hour, and I keep both feet off the pegs to kick the cycle upright if it should mush into the gravel and start to go down. We round a corner and suddenly enter the pines at a very steep V canyon in the mountains. And there, right beside the road, is a large gray house with an enormous abstract iron sculpture attached to one side and beneath it, sitting in a chair, tipped back against the house, surrounded by company, is the living image of Deweese himself with a can of beer in his hand, which waves to us right out of the old photographs. I'm so busy keeping the machine up, I can't take my hands off the grips, and I wave a leg back instead. The living image of Deweese himself grins as we pull up. You found it, he says, relaxed smile, happy eyes. It's been a long time, I say. I feel happy too, though strange at suddenly seeing the image move and talk. We dismount and take off our riding gear, and I see the open porch deck he and his guests are on is unfinished and unweathered. Deweese looks down from where it is only a few feet above the road on our side, but the V of the canyon slants so steeply that on the far side, the ground descends 15 feet below the deck. The stream itself appears another 50 feet down and away from the house, among trees and deep grass, where a horse, partially hidden by the trees, grazes without looking up. Now we have to look high to see the sky surrounding us in the dark green forest as we approached. This is just beautiful, Sylvia says. The living image of Deweese smiles down at her. Thank you, he says. I'm glad you like it. His tone is all here and now, completely relaxed. I realize that, although this is the authentic image of Deweese himself, it's also a brand new person who's been renewing himself continually. And I'm going to have to get to know him 
all over again. We step up onto the deck between the floorboards. It has spaces like a grate. I can see the ground through them. With the well, I'm not quite sure how to do this tone and smile. Deweese makes introductions all around, but they're in one ear, out the other. I can never remember names. His guests are an art instructor from the school who has horn-rimmed glasses and his wife who smiles self-consciously. They must be new. We talk for a while, Deweese mainly explaining to them who I am and then from where the deck disappears around the corner of the house suddenly comes Ginny Deweese with a tray of beer cans. She is a painter too and I am suddenly aware, a quick comprehender and already there's a shared smile over the artistic economy of grabbing a can of beer instead of her hand while she says some neighbors just come with a mess of trout for dinner i'm so pleased i will try and think of something appropriate to say but just nod we sit down i in the sunlight where it's difficult to distinguish details of the other side of the deck in the shade deweese looks at me seems about to comment on my appearance which is undoubtedly much different from what he remembers, but something deflects this, and he turns to John instead and asks about the trip. John explains that it's been just great, something he and Sylvia have needed for years. Sylvia seconds this, just to be out in the open in all this space, she says. Off of space in Montana, Deweese says, a little wistfully. He and John and the art instructor become involved in get acquainted talk about differences between Montana and Minnesota. The horse grazes peacefully below us and just beyond it water sparkles in the creek. The talk has shifted to Deweese's land here in the canyon, how long Deweese has lived here, what art instruction at the college is like, John has a real gift for casual conversation like this. I've never had, so I just listen. After a while, the heat from the sun is so great, I take off my sweater and open my shirt. Also, to stop squinting, I bring out some sunglasses and put them on. That's better, but it blanks out the shade so completely I can hardly see faces at all and leaves me feeling sort of visually detached from everything but the sun and the sunlit slopes of the canyon. I think of myself about unpacking, but decide not to mention it. They know we're staying, but just intuitively allow first things to happen first. First we relax, then we unpack. What's the hurry? The beer and the sun begin to toast my head like a marshmallow. Very nice. I don't know how much later I hear some comments about the movie star here come from John and I realize he's talking about me and my sunglasses. 
I look over the tops of them into the shade and make out the Deweese and John and the art instructor are smiling at me. They must want me in the conversation. Something about problems on the trip. They want to know what happens if something goes bad mechanically, John says. I relate the whole story of the time Chris and I were in the rainstorm and the engine quit, which is a good story, but somewhat pointless. I realize as I'm telling it as an answer to his question. The final line about being out of gas brings the expected groan. And I even told him to look, Chris says. Both Louise and Ginny comment on Chris's size. He becomes self-conscious and glows a little. They ask about his mother and his brother, and we both answer these questions as best we can. The heat of the sun finally becomes too much for me, and I shift my chair into the shade. The marshmallow feeling leaves the sudden in the sudden chill, and after a few minutes, I have to button up. Jeannie notices and says, as soon as the sun goes over the ridge up there, it gets really cold. The distance between the sun and the ridge is narrow. I judge that, although it's only the middle of the afternoon, less than half an hour of direct sun remains. John asks about the mountains in the winter, and he and Deweese and the art instructor talk about this and about snowshoeing in the mountains. I could just sit here forever. Sylvia and Jeannie and the art instructor's wife talk about the house, and soon Jeannie invites them inside. My thoughts drift to the statement about Chris growing so fast, and suddenly the feeling of the tomb comes on. I've heard only indirectly of the time Chris lived here, and yet to them it seems that he's hardly been gone. We live in entirely different time structures. The conversation shifts onto what is current in art and music and theater, and I'm surprised at how well John keeps up his end of the conversation. I'm not basically interested in what's new in these areas, and he probably knows it, and for that reason, never talks about it to me. Just the reverse of the motorcycle maintenance situation. I wonder if I look as glassy-eyed now as he does when I talk about rods and pistons. But what he and Deweese really have in common is Chris and me. And a funny stickiness is developing here. Ever since the movie star comment, John's good-natured sarcasm towards his old drinking and cycling companion is chilling. Deweese slightly causing reluctant, respectful tones towards me from Deweese. These seem to increase John's sarcasm in a self-stroking way. Then they both sense this, and so they kind of veer away from me onto some subjects of agreement and then come back again, but this stickiness develops. Then they veer away again onto another agreeable subject. Anyway, John says, this character here told us we were in for a letdown when we came here and we still haven't gotten over this letdown. I laugh. I hadn't wanted to build him up to it. Dewey smiles too. But then John turns to me and says, geez, 
You must have been really crazy. I mean, really nuts to leave this place. I don't care what the college is like. I see Dewey's look at him, shocked, then angrily. Dewey's looks at me, and I wave it off. Some kind of impasse has developed, but I don't know how to get around it. It's a beautiful place, I say weakly. Dewey's says defensively, if you were here for a while, you'd see another side to it. The instructor nods in agreement. The impasse now produces its silence. It's an impossible one to reconcile. What John said wasn't unkind. He's kinder than anyone. What he knows, and I know, but Deweese doesn't know, is that the person they're both referring to isn't much these days, just another middle-class, middle-aged person getting along, worried mainly about Chris, but beyond that, nothing special. But what Deweese and I know, and the Sutherlands don't know, is that there was someone, a person who lived here once, who was creatively on fire with a set of ideas no one had ever heard of before. But then something unexplained and wrong happened, and Deweese doesn't know how or why, and neither do I. The reason for the impasse, the bad feelings, is that Deweese thinks the person is here now, and there's no way I can tell him otherwise. For a brief moment, way up at the top of the ridge, the sun diffuses through the trees, and a halation of the light comes down to us. The halo expands, capturing everything in a sudden flash, and suddenly it catches me too. He saw too much, I say, still thinking about the impasse, but Deweese looks puzzled, and John doesn't register at all, and I realize the non sequitur too late. In the distance, a single bird cries plaintively. Now suddenly the sun is gone behind the mountain, and the whole canyon is a dull shadow. To myself, I think how uncalled for that was. You don't make statements like that. You leave the hospital with the understanding that you don't. Jean appears and Sylvia and suggests we unpack. We agree and she shows us to our rooms. I see that my bed has a heavy quilt on it against the cold of the night. Beautiful room. In three trips to the cycle and back, I have everything transferred. Then I go to Chris's room to see what needs to be unpacked. But he's cheerful and being grown up and doesn't need help. I look at him. How do you like it here? He says, fine, but it isn't anything like the way you told it last night when, just before we went to sleep in the cabin. I don't know what he's referring to. He adds, you said it was lonely here. Why would I say that? I don't know. My question frustrates him, so I leave it. He must have been dreaming. When we come down to the living room, I can smell the aroma from the frying trout in the kitchen. At one end of the room, Deweese is bent over the fireplace, holding a match to some newspaper under the kindling. We watch him for a while. We use this fireplace all summer long, he says. I reply, I'm surprised it's that cold. Chris says, 
He's cold too. I send him back up for a sweater. Might as well. It's the evening wind, Dewey says. It sweeps down the canyon from up high where it's really cold. The fire flares suddenly and then dies, then flares again from an uneven draft. It must be windy, I think. And look through the huge windows that line one wall of the living room. Across the canyon in the dusk, I see the sharp movement of the trees. But that's right, Dewey says. You know how cold it is up there. You used to spend all your time up there. It brings back memories, I say. A single fragment comes to mind now of night winds all around a campfire, smaller than this one before us now, sheltered in the rock against the high wind because there are no trees. Next to the fire are cooking gear and backpacks to help give wind shelter and a canteen filled with water gathered from the melting snow. The water had to be collected early because above the timberline, the snow stops melting when the sun goes down. Deweese says, you've changed a lot. He's looking at me searchingly. His expression seems to ask whether this is a forbidden topic or not. Then he gathers from looking at me that it is. He adds, I guess we all have. I reply, I'm not the same person at all. And this seems to put him a little more at ease. Were he aware of the literal truth of that, he'd be a lot less at ease. And a lot has happened, I say. And some things have come up that have made it important to try to untangle them a little, in my own mind at least. And that's partly why I'm here. He looks at me expecting something more. But the art instructor and his wife appear by the fireside and we drop it. The wind sounds like there'll be a storm tonight, the instructor says. I don't think so, Dewey says. Chris returns with the sweaters and asks if there are any ghosts up in the canyon. Dewey looks at him with amusement. No, but there are wolves, he says. Chris thinks about this and asks, what do they do? Dewey says, they make trouble for the ranchers. He frowns. They kill the young calves and lambs. Do they chase people? I've never heard of it, Deweese says. And then seeing that this disappoints Chris, adds, disappoints Chris, adds, but they could. At dinner, the brook trout is accompanied by glasses of Bay County Chablis. We sit separately in chairs and sofas around the living room. One entire side of this room has windows, which would overlook the canyon, except that it's now dark outside and the glass reflects the light from the fireplace. The glow of the fire is matched by- That's funny that the way they have dinner parties is sitting separately in chairs and couches around the fireplace, etc., around the cabin. <laughs> It must be an artist thing. I don't know. That's how we have dinner parties. Now my parents, the businessy people, like set a proper table, like line up the stuff, decide who's going to sit where, like force the thing, right? Force the interactions. Linear. I love the way he describes the artist's house and the flow. 
right? And who he has over. And ah, it's a great scene. From the wine and the fish. And we don't say much except murmurs of appreciation. Sylvia murmurs to John to notice the large pots and faces around the room. I was noticing those, John says. Fantastic. Those were made by Peter Olkus, Sylvia says. Is that right? He was a student of Mr. Deweese. Oh, for Christ's sake, I almost kicked one of those over. Deweese laughs. Later, John mumbles something a few times, looks up and announces, this does it. This just does the whole thing for us. Now we can go back for another 80 years on 2649 Colfax Avenue. Sylvia says mournfully, let's not talk about that. John looks at me for a moment. I suppose anybody with friends who can provide an evening like this can't be all bad. He nods gravely. I'm going to have to take back all those things I thought about you. All of them, I ask? Some, anyway. Deweese and the instructor smile, and some of the impasse goes away. After dinner, Jack Wheela Barnes arrives. More living images. Jack is recorded in the tomb fragments as a person who writes and teaches English at the college. Their arrival is followed by that of a sculptor from northern Montana who herds sheep for his income. I gather from the way Deweese introduces him that I'm not supposed to have met him before. Deweese says he is trying to persuade the sculptor to join the faculty, and I say, I'll try and talk him out of it and sit down next to him. But conversation is very sticky because the sculptor is extremely serious and suspicious, evidently because I am not an artist. He acts like I am a detective trying to get something on him. And it isn't until he discovers I do a lot of welding that I become okay. Motorcycle maintenance opens strange doors. He says he welds for some of the same reasons I do. After you pick up the skill, welding gives a tremendous feeling of power and control over the metal. You can do anything. He brings out some photographs of things he has welded. Then these show beautiful birds and animals with flowing metal surface textures that are not like anything else. Later, I move over and talk with Jack and Wyla. Jack is leaving to head an English department town down in Boise, Idaho. His attitudes towards the department here seem guarded, but negative. They would be negative, of course, or he wouldn't be leaving. I seem to remember now he was a fiction writer mainly who taught English rather than a systematic scholar who taught English. There was a continuing split in the department along these lines, in part gave rise to, or at least accelerated the growth of Phaedrus's wild set of ideas, which no one else had ever heard of. And Jack was supportive of Phaedrus because although he wasn't sure he knew what Phaedrus was talking about, 
he saw it was something a fiction writer could work with better than linguistic analysis. It's an old split, like the one between art and art history. One does it and the other talks about how it's done and the talk about how it's done never seems to match how one does it. Deweese brings over some instructions or assembly of an outdoor barbecue rotisserie, which he wants me to evaluate as a professional technical writer. He spent a whole afternoon trying to get the thing together, and he wants to see these instructions totally damned. But as I read them, they look like ordinary instructions to me, and I'm at a loss to find anything wrong with them. And I don't want to say this, of course, so I hunt for something to pick on. You can't really tell whether a set of instructions are all right until you check them against the device or procedure they describe. But I see a page separation that prevents reading them without flipping back and forth between the text and the illustration. Always a poor practice. I jump on this very hard and Dewey's encourages every jump. Chris takes the instructions to see what I mean. But while I'm jumping on this and describing some of the agonies of misrepresentation that bad cross-referencing can produce, I have a feeling that this isn't why Deweese Bauman so hard to understand. It's just the lack of smoothness and continuity which threw him off. He's unable to comprehend things when they appear in the ugly, chopped up, grotesque style common to engineering and technical writing. Science works with chunks and bits and pieces of things with the continuity presumed. Then Deweese works only with the continuities of things with the chunks and bits and pieces presumed. What he really wants me to damn is the lack of artistic continuity, something an engineer couldn't care less about. It hangs up really on the classic romantic split like everything else about technology. But Chris, meanwhile, takes the instructions and folds them around in a way I hadn't thought of, so the illustration sits there right next to the text. I double take this, then triple take it, and feel like a movie cartoon character who just walked beyond the edge of a cliff but hasn't fallen yet because he hasn't realized his predicament. I nod. And there's silence. And then I realize my predicament. Then a long laughter as I pound Chris on the top of the head all the way down to the bottom of the canyon. When the laughter subsides, I say, well, anyway. But the laughter starts all over again. What I wanted to say, I finally get in, is that I've set of instructions at home which open up great realms for the improvement of technical writing. They begin, assembly of a Japanese bicycle require great peace of mind. This procedure, this produces more laughter that Sylvia and Jean and the sculptor give sharp looks of recognition. That's a good instruction, the sculptor says. Jean nods too. That's kind of why I saved it, I say. At first, 
I laughed because of memories of bicycles I put together. And of course, the unintended slur on Japanese manufacture. But there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. John looks at me apprehensively. I look at him with equal apprehension. We both laugh. He says, the professor will now expound. Peace of mind isn't at all superficial, really, I expound. It's the whole thing. That which produces it is good maintenance. That which disturbs it is poor maintenance. What we call workability of the machine is just an objectification of the peace of mind. The ultimate tests always your own serenity. If you don't have this when you start and maintain it while you're working, you're likely to build your personal problems right into the machine itself. They just look at me thinking about this. It's an unconventional concept, I say, but conventional reason bears it out. The material object of observation, the bicycle or the rotisserie, can't be wrong or right. Molecules are molecules. They don't have any ethical codes to follow except those that people give them. The test of the machine is the satisfaction it gives you. There isn't any other test. If the machine produces tranquility, it's right. If it disturbs you, it's wrong until either the machine or your mind changes. The test of the machines, always your own mind. There isn't any other test. Dewey asks, what if the machine is wrong? Then I feel peaceful about it. Laughter. I reply. Self-contradictory. Anyway, sorry, I pressed the wrong button. Uh. If you really don't care, you aren't going to know it's wrong. The thought will never occur to you. The act of producing its wrongs a form of caring. I add, what's more common is that you feel unpeaceful even if it's right. And I think that's the actual case. case here. In this case, you're worried it isn't right. That means it isn't checked out thoroughly enough. In any industrial situation, a machine that isn't checked out is a down machine and can't be used, even though it may work perfectly. Your worry about the rotisserie is the same thing. You haven't completed the ultimate requirement of achieving peace of mind because you feel these instructions are too complicated and you may not have understood them correctly. Louise asks, well, how do you change them so I would get this peace of mind? That would quote, require a lot more study than I've just given them now, but the whole thing goes very deep. The rotisserie instructions begin and end exclusively with the machine, but the kind of approach I'm thinking about doesn't cut off so narrowly. What's really angering about the instructions of this sort is that they imply there's only one way to put the rotisserie together their way and the presumption wipes out all the creativity actually there are hundreds of ways to put together the rotisserie and when they make you follow just one way 
without showing you the overall problem, the instructions become hard to follow in such a way as not to make serious mistakes. You lose feeling for the work, and not only that, it's very unlikely that... That's why you... If you open instructions at all, you should go to the end, look at the thing completely built. Then if they have an exploded diagram of the thing with all of its parts in three-dimensional space exploded with the little lines of how they go back together and see the done thing, the beginning thing. And if you look backwards through the instructions, you'll see how they ended up, how they ended up and how like, oh yeah, really, this is like three different segments you're building. And then you put them together at the end. Build up, yeah. Skip to the end, then go backwards. Best way. But there, from the factory, John says, I'm from the factory too, I say, and I know how instructions like this are put together. You go out on the assembly line with the tape recorder, and the foreman sends you to talk to the guy he needs least, the biggest goof off he's got. And whatever he tells you, that's the instructions. The next guy might have told you something completely differently and probably better, but he's too busy. They all look surprised. I might have known, Deweese says. It's the format, I say. No writer can fuck it. Technology presumes that you're just one right way to do things. And there never is. And when you presume there's just one right way to do things, of course, the instructions begin and end exclusively with the rotisserie. But if you have to choose among an infinite number of ways to put it together, then the relation of the machine to you and the relation of the machine and you to the rest of the world has to be considered. Because the selection from among many choices, the art of the work, is just as dependent upon your own mind and spirit as it is upon the material of the machine. That's why you need the peace of mind. Actually, this idea isn't so strange, I continue. Sometimes look at a novice workman or a bad workman and compare his expression with that of a craftsman whose work you know is excellent, and you will see the difference. The craftsman isn't ever following a single line of instruction. He's making decisions as he goes along. For that reason, he'll be absorbed and attentive to what he's doing, even though he doesn't deliberately contrive this. His motions and the machine are in a kind of harmony. He isn't following any set of written instructions because the nature of the material at hand determines his thoughts and motions, which simultaneously change the nature of the material at hand. The material and his thoughts are changing together in a progression of changes until his mind's at rest. At the same time, the material's right. Sounds like art, the instructor says. Well, it is art, I say. This 
divorce of art from technology is completely unnatural. It's just that it's gone on so long, you have to be an archaeologist to find out where the two separated. Rotisserie assembly is actually a long lost branch of sculpture, so divorced from its roots by centuries of intellectual wrong turns that just to associate the two sounds ludicrous. They're not sure whether I'm kidding or not. You mean Dewey says that when I was putting this rotisserie together, I was actually sculpting it. Sure. He goes over this in his mind, smiling more and more. I wish I'd have known that, he says. Laughter follows. Chris says he doesn't understand what I'm saying. That's all right, Chris. Jack Barter says we don't either. More laughter. I think I'll just stay with ordinary sculpture, the sculptor says. I think I'll just stick to painting, Dewey says. I think I'll just stick to drumming, John says. Chris says, what are you going to stick to? My guns, boy, my guns, I tell him. That's the code of the West. They all laugh hard at this, and my speechifying seems forgiven. When you've got a chattaqua in your head, it's extremely hard not to inflict it on innocent people. The conversation breaks up into groups, and I spend the rest of the party talking to Jack and Wyla about developments in the English department. After the party is over and the Sutherlands and Chris have gone to bed, Deweese recalls my lecture, however. He says, seriously, what you said about the rotisserie instructions was interesting. Jeannie adds, also seriously, it sounded like you had been thinking about it for a long time. I've been thinking about concepts that underlie it for 20 years, I say. Beyond the chair in front of me, sparks fly up the chimney, drawn by the wind outside, now stronger than before. I add, almost to myself, you look at where you're going and where you are, and it never makes sense. But then you look back at where you've been, and a pattern seems to emerge. And if you project forward from the pattern, then sometimes you can come up with something. All that talk about technology and art is part of a pattern that seems to have emerged from my own life. It represents a transcendence from something I think a lot of others may be trying to transcend. What's that? Well, it isn't just art and technology. It's a kind of non-coalescence between reason and feeling. What's wrong with technology is that it's not connected in any real way with matters of the spirit and of the heart. And so it does blind, ugly things quite by accident and gets hated for that. People haven't paid much attention to this before because the big concern has been with food, clothing, shelter for everyone and technology has provided these but now where these are assured the ugliness is being noticed more and more and people are asking if we must always suffer spiritually and aesthetically 
in order to satisfy material needs. Lately, it's become almost a national crisis. Anti-pollution drives, anti-technological communes and styles of life and all that. Both Deweese and Cheney have understood all this for so long, there's no need for comment. So I add, what's emerging from the pattern of my own life is the belief that the crisis is being caused by the inadequacy of existing forms of thought to cope with the situation. It can't be solved by rational means because the rationality itself is the source of the problem. The only ones who are solving it are solving it at a personal level by abandoning square rationality altogether and going by feelings alone. John and Sylvia here and millions of others like them. And that seems like a wrong direction too. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that a solution to the problem isn't that you abandon rationality, but you expand the nature of rationality so that it is capable of coming up with a solution. I guess I don't know what you mean, Jeannie says. Well, it's quite a bootstrap operation. It's analogous to the kind of hangup Sir Isaac Newton had when he wanted to solve problems of instantaneous rates of change. It was unreasonable in his time to think of anything changing within a zero amount of time, yet it's almost necessary mathematically to work with other zero quantities such as points in space and time that no one thought were unreasonable at all, although there was no real difference. So what Newton did was say, in effect, we're going to presume there's such a thing as an instantaneous change and see if we can find ways of determining what it is in various applications. The result of this presumption is the branch of mathematics known as calculus, which every engineer uses today. Newton invented a new form of reason. He expanded reason to handle infinitesimal changes. And I think what is needed now is a similar expansion of reason to handle technological ugliness. The trouble is that the expansion has to be made at the roots, not at the branches. And that's what makes it hard to see. We're living in a topsy-turvy time. And I think that's what causes the topsy-turvy feelings is inadequacy of old forms of thought to deal with new experiences. I've heard it said that the only real learning results from hangups, where instead of expanding the branch of what you already know, you have to stop and drift laterally for a while until you come across something that allows you to expand the roots of what you already know. Everyone's familiar with that. I think the same thing occurs while the whole civilization when expansions needed at the roots. You look back at the last 3,000 years, and with hindsight, you think you see a neat pattern of chains of cause and effect that have made things the way they are. But if you go back to original sources, 
the literature of any particular era, you find that these causes were never apparent at the time. They were supposed to be operating. During the period of root expansion, things have always looked as confused and topsy-turvy and purposeless as they do now. The whole Renaissance is supposed to have resulted from the topsy-turvy feeling caused by Columbus's discovery of a new world. It just shook people up. The topsy-turviness of that time is recorded everywhere. There was nothing in the flat earth views of the Old and New Testaments that predicted it, yet people couldn't deny it. The only way they could assimilate it was to abandon the entire medieval outlook and enter into a new expansion of reason. Columbus had become such a school book stereotype, it's almost impossible to imagine him as a living human being anymore. But if you really try to hold back your present knowledge about the consequences of his trip and project yourself into his situation, then sometimes you can begin to see that our present moon exploration must be like a tea party compared to what he went through. Moon exploration doesn't involve real root expansions of thought. We've no reason to doubt that the existing forms of thought are adequate to handle it. It's really just a branch expansion, expansion of what Columbus did, a really new exploration, one that would look to us today the way the world looked to Columbus would have to be in an entirely new direction. Like what? Like into realms beyond reason. Time I think present-day reason is an analog of the flat earth of the medieval period. If you go too far beyond it, you're presumed to fall off into insanity. And people are very much afraid of it. I think this fear of insanity is comparable to the fear people once had of falling off the edge of the world or the fear of heretics. There's very close analog there. But what's happening is that each year, our old flat earth of conventional reason becomes less and less adequate to handle the experiences we have. And this is creating widespread feelings of topsy-turviness. As a result, we're getting more and more people in irrational areas of thought, occultism, mysticism, drug changes, and the like, because they feel the inadequacy of classical reason to handle what they know are real experiences. I'm think about when he was writing that back in like the early seventies, right? <laughs> it's or two thousand twenty-three. Back to the beginning. Occultism, drugs, people detaching from reality because reality isn't matching their objective experience. <laughs> right they're i would say about to do ufo dumps for their like conditioning and prepping people so they don't break people's minds and then shit i mean november 30th 2022 the new chat bot 
GPT release that is epically better than previous versions that people, the general public that are wanting to look at what's going down, get a good idea of how big of a leap forward it is and what kind of whole career paths just got, you know, decimated. Uh, not decimated, but changed forever, for sure. Can't go back. Genie's not going back in the bottle, right? So yeah, topsy-turvy. Ha ha ha. Good time to read this book. By classical reason, analytical reason, dialectic reason, reason which at the university is sometimes considered to be the whole of understanding. You've never had to understand it, really. It's always been completely bankrupt with regard to abstract art. Non-representative art is one of the root experiences I'm talking about. Some people still condemn it because it doesn't make sense. But what's really wrong is not the art, but the sense, the classical reason, which can't grasp it. People look for branch extensions of reason that will cover art's more recent occurrences, but the answers aren't in the branches, they're at the roots. A rush of wind comes furiously now down from the mountaintop. The ancient Greeks, I say, who were the inventors of classical reason, knew better than to use it exclusively to foretell the future. They listened to the wind and predicted the future from that. That sounds insane now, but why should the inventors of reason sound insane? Do we squint? How could they tell the future from the wind? I don't know. Maybe the same way a painter can tell the future of his painting by staring at the canvas. Our whole system of knowledge stems from their results. We've yet to understand the methods that produced these results. I think for a while and say, when I was last here, did I talk much about the church of reason? Yes, you talked a lot about that. Did I ever talk about an individual named Phaedrus? No. Who was he, Jeannie asks. He was an ancient Greek, a rhetorician, a composition major of his time. He was one of those present when reason was being invented. You never talked about that, I don't think. That must have come later. The rhetoricians of ancient Greece were the first teachers in the history of the Western world. Plato vilified them in all his works to grind an ax of his own. And since what we know about them is almost entirely from Plato, they're unique in that they've stood condemned throughout history without ever having their side of the story told. The Church of Reason that I talked about was founded on their graves. It's supported today by their graves, and when you dig deep into its foundations, you come across ghosts. I look at my watch. It's after two. 
It's a long story, I say. You should write all this down, Jeannie says. I'm not in agreement. I'm thinking about a series of lecture essays, a sort of Chautauqua. I've been trying to work them out in my mind as we wrote out here, which is probably why I sound so primed on all this stuff. It's all so huge and difficult, like trying to travel through these mountains on foot. The trouble is that these essays always have to sound like God talking for eternity, and that isn't the way it ever is. People should see that it's never anything other than just one person talking from one place in time and space and circumstances. It's never been anything else, ever. But you can't get that across in an essay. You should do it anyway, Jeannie says without trying to get it perfect. I suppose I say, Deweese asks, does this tie in with what you were doing on quality? It's the, it's the direct result of it, I say. I remember something and look at Deweese. Didn't you advise me to drop it? I said, no one had ever succeeded in doing what you were trying to do. Do you think it's impossible? I don't know. Who knows? His expression is really concerned. A lot of people are listening better these days, particularly the kids. They're really listening. And not just at you, to you, to you. It makes all the difference. The wind coming down from the snowfields, up above the sounds for a long time throughout the house. It growls loud and high, as if in hopes of sweeping the whole house, all of us, away into nothing, leaving the canyon as it once was. But the house stands, then the wind dies away again, defeated. Then it comes back, feigning a light blow from the far side, then suddenly a heavy gust from our side. I keep listening to the wind, I say. I add, I think when the Sutherlands have left, Chris and I should do some climbing up to where that wind starts. I think it's time he got a better look at the land. You can start from right here, Dewey says, and head back up the canyon. There's no road for 75 miles. Then this is where we'll start, I say. Upstairs, I'm glad to see the bed's heavy quilt again. It's become quite cold now, and it'll be needed. I undress quickly and get way down deep under the quilt where it's warm, very warm. And I think for a long time about the snowfields and winds and Christopher Columbus. Oh, that's one of my favorite lines about DeWeese when he's like, it's different now. The kids really listen to you, right? Because he's writing this in like early 70s. So that means when he was a professor, it would have been back in the 50s, right? Everybody was just doing the pretend dance. Just <laughs> do the get along, go along, fall on the line, do the thing, don't learn the shit, get the stamp, go get the office, <laughs> fill out the reports, get promoted. 
get your 3% raise, get the house, get the kids, get the car, get the shit. Ah! <laughs> right? And the 60s kids are like, fuck that. So you got to figure out he's writing this. So that's to we now, like on his trip back, talking about like, it's different. The kids listen. They want to learn some shit because they know the <laughs> They they are seeking info because the jigs up. They know it's not truth being jammed down their throat everywhere. And I would say now in 2023, fast forward. Yeah, why is there so much content online now from people who've done a bunch of shit in the real world? that will give you life hacks because they've done it for free. Because, you know, they like to teach people or like to push people ahead or like, hey, you can bust your balls doing that or here's the like, mm, mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that, right? You could go reinvent a bunch of aquaponic shit or you could just learn about my living river system and just fast forward. No inputs, all outputs, make money. Yeah. Once you know a thing exists, someone else has done the hard work. And I think that's the deal. I think kids now, the ones that want knowledge, understand there is nothing separating them from it except time. That's it. You can listen to shit on 1.75 or 2x. Double the amount of knowledge you've input. Not that hard. Yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, I hope you've noticed the show's trying to get a little more serious. Uh, I did notice at the very beginning, I F-bombed my normal F-bombs and this and that. But uh, I think YouTube's going to be crackety-cracking on, like, gratuitous swearing i would put myself in the gratuitous category i don't know if there's a more xxx category of uh, loves to swear but you know yeah apparently under the new social engineering regime Kyle biden yeah under the new regime uh i guess three-letter agencies that are you know, doing the mind control uh, programming have decided that free use of language with like expletives is a big problem. So I'll have to be much more creative in the way I describe things anatomically correctly without getting like, you know, elephant penises forcefully inserted in submissive husband's rectums you know it would just take me a little longer to like call you what i want to call you but you know whatever <laughs> the algorithm will probably like it for being medically correct <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> whatever whatever right it's the eye if you can get the idea across <laughs> and just the fact that you have to like talk like a 
pleasantly retarded robot <laughs> to get your points across. Programming. 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 Yes. The humanoids are being F-ing expletive programmed. Hey, anyway, <laughs> tune in tomorrow, Friday, episode 183, AI learnings for the week. Yeah, I've used AI for a bunch of stuff. I'll tell you what's up, what I know so far. Trying to find the edges here and there. I broke it once. Uh, I'll share that chat with you. That's a good idea. I should go get that uh, where I can share. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, hmm. This morning, they wouldn't let you see your previous conversations with the AI bot. Well, the one. I wonder if that's fixed or maybe people found some borders they shouldn't have found and they needed to erase all that history. <laughs> Throw in some more. Mm, almost <laughs> bumpers. <laughs> da, da, da. Oh, stay tuned tomorrow. We'll find out. And if you just like book days, come back next Thursday. Chill, hang out. Um, yeah, I joined Podmatch, so I'm now getting matched with guests that are super interesting. And I've got next Monday booked. Um, I made the show, but I didn't, um, da, da, da. <laughs> I didn't put it in show notes. Oh, you know what? I can really easily do that. I think I can do this. Let's see. Let's see. I'm scrambling. It crashes the stream. It crashes the stream, but I don't think it will. I think I can go grab the YouTube link for the show. His name's Tyler Foley. It's going to be episode 184. Uh, let's see. We don't want to invite guests. We want to view it on YouTube. And blah, blah, blah. That is the link. Copy. And I'm going to paste it in the comments over here. Paste. Boom. Hey, so if you want to see it on Monday live, um, yeah. The link is now live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook. Click on it and then click the notify me bell. It's set up for, I believe, two Pacific, or I'm pretty certain. Um, yeah, he was a stuntman that got into acting um, and now public speaking and being an author. So how to speak better to audiences. Um, yeah, one of his taglines is uh, don't picture your audience naked. So, yeah, yeah, it, it should be super interesting. He went through Stuntman, um, and then I don't know if he got hurt or something happened, but he got up in, like, worked through safety, like a company doing Stuntman stuff, but on the safety side, I think, and then uh, got into the whole public speaking and then became an author. And now he's... Uh, He's like the number one podcast guest on Podmatch, uh, and he guarantees to be funny AF. So <laughs> da, 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 we'll find out. We'll find out. So that's the first uh, the first match. I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. Stuntman, author, actor, book writer. Let's roll. Let's roll. So that'll be Monday, not at the usual time, a little later in the afternoon. 
Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, yeah, tomorrow, AI learnings for the week. Don't know if I'll randomly pop up this weekend. Pop, pop, pop. Maybe, maybe. I got a bunch of coffee to roast and get out for everybody. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, yeah, to the roaster with you scrambling. Go, go. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, let's see. Oh, maybe I can show you in a picture. No, uh, I have this coffee club as a part of my... Oh, that's tomorrow. Uh, Okay, let's try the other way. Um, That is, uh, yeah, up in the corner here. See that where it says Food Force Farms? Um, Oh, yeah, here, I'll run the banner for just a second. Run the banner. Uh, Sometimes it gets cluttery. It looks like CNN. Yeah, so we do free priority delivery, all 50 states. We accept crypto, Bitcoin. Uh, just enter crypto at checkout if you want to pay with crypto. Then I will send you the BTC address to the email. You enter in the little box. And uh, bingo, bango, you got some of the finest air roasted coffee on the planet to you. Yeah, we use uh, Square for our shopping cart. So we will take, uh, yeah, anything. Visa, MasterCard, American Express. You know what the cool thing is? Uh, I have a couple of people that pay, and I know they use Fold cards. So if you're into stacking Satoshis, stacking sats, um, and you want to buy stuff off of foodforestfarms.com, cannabinoidnaturalfoods.com, or stonedmetalart.com, or thesquatchfest.com, it doesn't matter. It's all the same shopping cart. Um, yeah, you can use your fold card and stack those sats. <laughs> stack those sats. Uh, yeah, that would be uh, that'd be fun. You guys make satoshis, and I will make you great coffee. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, C four. You always hear me say that. C four. C four. C four. What the hell? <laughs> Scrambling, you're nuts. Yes, yes, I am. But on the other hand, I have a great club that I made because people that love specialty coffee love it. And people that love our CBD and CBG items, they love those too. And they buy them regularly. So I wanted to reward our really steady customers. And then it went a step further because I was like, when it was when NFTs were kind of the rage and I was... I'd heard about a winery that was selling NFTs where you could actually buy a percentage of each grapevine. Are you owned a particular grapevine? I forgot how they were doing their splits. But you literally, when they picked that vine, they would RFID chip it, would know the weight that came out, and you would get that proportional share of the company. I don't think they were sharing in losses. I think they were sharing in profits, but whatever, whatever. So... They were the only ones that had really heard about using NFTs properly, non-fungible tokens, not the same, and a limited amount of them, a limited supply, and how they would be produced was linked to a real-world thing. That gave me the idea to like, yeah, I love roasting specialty coffee, and I love doing it at a scale where I have access to importing great stuff, being able to go to the specialty coffee shows as a buyer and all that. So yeah, that became like, let's start 
the C4. We can do a monthly subscription for coffee or cannabinoids, or I used to be a professional consultant, so brand consulting or marketing consulting, launch consulting, business operations. We used to run a lot of restaurants. I brought a lot of products to market and tell you the steps behind the scene. Effing hate it, but we can tell you what to do next and we're going to get attacked next. So anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, consulting. So it was like, ah, and then we have a, a whole, uh, we have a whole camp. So we added in, ah, I didn't update this one yet. Uh, camping is the fourth C. So yeah, yeah, you, you form a patron relationship with us, send us 40 bucks a month. You get one of the hundred slots after we sell number 100. It's like an NFT. There aren't any more. There are those hundred slots. That's it. I will add a big bid and an ask to the board here. So the hundred and one person who wants me to roast coffee for him will be like, sorry, Charlie, you're just like one day late. <laughs> it's okay. What will you pay if somebody wants to give up their position? Maybe you can entice somebody to give up their position. Maybe somebody was thinking about it or the bought multiples earlier. That's like, hey, a new dude in the pile. We'll, we'll sell him our one of our extra positions because a number of people that heard the concept right off the bat understand NFTs and were like, whoop, okay, I'll take two. So, right, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a right to get fifty bucks worth of my product a month for forty dollars. Well, fifty to sixty, you, you get a smoking deal. So, yeah, it's a right to buy at a crazy discount that the general public won't get. And after we get the 100th coffee member, I won't roast for anybody else anymore. I will remove my retail coffee from the Internet. Right now, if you want to try Food Forest Farms coffee, just go over there. You can buy a bag. I'll sell you one, sell you two, sell you ten, sell you cases. Um, the day we get our 100th member, <laughs> Food Forest Farms logo over there with coffee roasters would just go away. And uh, it will be the new da, 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 Food Forest Farms Studios logo will replace it because I will no longer be open for retail coffee business. I will only serve my members, period. That's enough. That's enough income. A hundred members, plenty. <laughs> But it lets me buy coffee on the scale that we can do fun stuff. We can get we can get real stuff. And I can get one size up on a roaster. A little better place. Just a whole bunch of shit. But yeah, 100 slams the door shut. Website comes down or gets rearranged just to be art and CBD stuff. And uh, we start planning the trip to Costa Rica to go see where the coffee is made. That. I think is a reason to join the C4. C4. Yeah, if you've always wanted to see Costa Rica, but like kind of with a local, I used to do a lot of business down there. I'll get us hooked up. Um, we'll go visit coffee farms. We'll go see nurseries, where they grow, how it's picked, go to the mill. We'll do the whole tour. We'll go visit coffee families, go hang out in small towns with, you know, go experience the coffee from seed to cup. So anyway, yeah, 
all we got to do. Boop, beep, boop. Yep, 100 NFTs, uh, 47 gone, 53 left. Hey, if you aren't a coffee freak or you don't use CBD stuff or you don't think you could use a couple hundred bucks worth of uh, camping or uh, any of that stuff during the year, then hey, do me a solid and tell a friend. That's it. Or drop by. Tell somebody to pop by the show if you think the show is interesting or uh, you'll learn anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no fee, no paywall, none of that bullshit. Just, uh, just old scrambling, trying to share some knowledge with you. All right, guys, go seek quality in everything you do. Have a fucking great day. I love you.